but the value of let's say a year of that and learning all the tiny nuances of how your pedal stroke is and how your foot's um, applying pressure throughout and is your heel in the shoe properly can you wiggle your toes and what happens then and how your upstroke is versus your downstroke and when your hips are engaged and the glutes are engaged and the hamstrings are engaged and how relaxed your shoulders are in your cycling position and where you're gripping and how tight you're gripping and how you're breathing and i mean there's endless things and that's just cycling just think of this running or swimming like you're constantly and same workout let's say same one hour six days a week 52 weeks i mean i'd almost want to try that <laughs> but with like with like a, a clean sheet right as an, of an athlete but yeah so there is a lot happening we are never the same person than we were five minutes ago and so that's the, the the hard path to take quite honestly and it touches on what zone two actually is the patience and discipline and awareness you learn by keeping things that easy by willing to let go and just sort of tune out in order to let the heart rate stay low, not have expectations, not want to grind, not think go hard or go home is the answer. And shifting your mindset and your being to this sort of patient, go all day approach, it will take what it takes, how long it takes, whatever it takes, um, touches on that somewhat. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Endurance and Pursuit of Potential podcast, formerly the Weekly Word podcast. This podcast is about advancing the integration of mindset and performance. We do this by diving into the endurance lifestyle, the mindset, the supporting infrastructure for you to achieve endurance adventures, for you to be able to go out and do the adventures you're curious about, to follow through on that impulse to dream. What does it take? How does it work? Why not me? And what are all the ingredients to make this journey a successful one? We talk not only training topics for endurance events, the performance side of it, but also go deeper into the mindset that is beneficial in any area of life. Who can you be when you are pursuing your true potential? Endurance training and its adventures out in nature bring us closer to the places in ourselves that often go unvisited in modern life. That is what I am always seeking. This is what I am trying to help others find. That is what I'm here to unlock for you on this podcast to discuss the endurance lifestyle along with all its ingredients and amazing changes it can bring about. Also to answer some of the typical questions many of you may have on how to integrate this curiosity and dream with the reality of our everyday life and responsibilities. So today we're going to continue on a podcast that actually David and I recorded a couple of weeks ago, but it was so long because we went so deep into so many topics that we split it up into two. So the second part of that longer podcast. I didn't want to do that to all of you of having a two and a half to three hour podcast. 
We go into swim training questions today, planning workouts, and the 3,000-yard rule. We talk rest intervals on bike workouts. We explain where the thought process is coming from. We talk about spending less time sighting on open water swimming and how that's not energy well utilized during a race, in a race, in the first early stages of a very long day ahead of us. We also talk about how to monitor total athlete training load on a question I received via email. And lastly, we also talk a little bit about doing the same training week on repeat for a year. Now, this is more the technical side, the performance side of the Endurance and Pursuit of Potential podcast, because that is part of what we're trying to do here. Combine and integrate mindset and performance. So there'll be times we go deep into mindset and other times we'll dive into the training details. We'll dive into the philosophy of coaching. We'll dive into the nuance of specific workouts and specific training questions. We'll have a little bit more of that today and I hope you enjoy this episode. All right, so we'll start with some training questions on the swimming front because I have uh, two or so emails on that and want to dive into that. Uh, this one's from Van. Swimming and the 3,000 rule. I know, or loose rule. Due to my available pool time, I typically get two to three, two times a week, three to 3,200 yards in per week, and another 2,000 or 2,500 yards per week. So four swims. I train and race long course triathlon, half and full. I'm 51 years old and do very little strength training outside of core stability and a whooping 25-pound kettlebell for Roman deadlift shoulder press. Not bad. It's something. Um, question is, would I be better off scrapping one or two short swims per week and lift? Probably. Lastly, I've done a few of your bike interval sessions you have on your website. Very good. I find minimal rest between sets, 30 seconds to one minute challenging. I typically take two to three easy between blocks, two to three minutes. See if we got that. Do you find short breaks more valuable? I assume so since that's why you make them, tired legs. All right, well, there's more questions in here than I thought. Let's go through them one by one. What do you say, David? Let's do it. Yay. The 3000 rule. <laughs> so some some things, some inputs here. So one, the 3000 rule. Um, for those of you that don't know what the 3000 rule is, um, that's my prompt from David saying, explain to people what the 3000 rule is. That is, um, if you're not really swimming 3000 yards, it's not really extending your endurance. And... Yes, four swims a week at with the two to two thousand five hundred is fine because you're still getting in around ten thousand to eleven thousand yards per week, but you need to look at those swims with a different um, intention. So three thousand to three thousand two hundred yards is good for half Ironman swim training. That's your endurance session, and then what I would do with those two 2,000 to 2,500 yards per week sessions. I would keep them, yes, but make those my stamina sessions. Remember, endurance is longest effort. How long can I go? 
Stamina is how long can I go maximum effort? And we want to obviously increase stamina once we know we can go long enough to do the distance that we're looking to do. That's a very broad general description of endurance versus stamina. But it helps you understand the desired outcome of the session. So if I go into the 2,000-yard session with a focus on stamina, no, that doesn't mean jump in and swim 2,000 straight as fast as I can. No, it means let me up the quality on this, up the intensity effort level on this because I only have to do it for 2,000 yards. Whereas the 3,000 can be your endurance because your swim for a half Ironman is 2,225 yards. Going 3,000 steady, comfortably, with still with a structured workout. Um, a reminder here, please do not swim straight 3,000s or 2,000s. For those of you who are new to triathlon, I think that's how you train for open water swimming. You would still want to do interval work. You still want to do sets. You still want to break it up. You want to maintain posture, form, technical sound movements um, for as much of the workout as you can. So swimming straight, 3,000 or 2,000 is not going to help you become a better swimmer. That's not purposeful practice. That's exercising. Back to our regularly scheduled broadcast. So that's what we want to think about. Now, my question would be, well, you just said for half Ironman, what about for Ironman? For Ironman, a, you know, a 4,250-yard swim, well, we sort of need to swim more than 3,000. <laughs> I really can say that. Let's go back to a principle here that you're going to hear from me a lot in 2022. Remember what training is. From a physio physiological standpoint, we mean stress that results in physiological adaptations. You guys all hear me say this. It's all about adaptation if we're going to train. For example, like increasing functional threshold power, FTP, or how much power you can put out, let's say, for an hour, or the phys physiological adaptation of increasing blood plasma levels, or as well as increasing mitochondrial density in the muscles, or as well as improving the ability to replenish and use, actually the other way around, use and replenish glycogen, um, or the ability to burn more fat as fuel, or heat adaption slash tolerance, or oxygen uptake, via expanding the capillary network. I told you I was going technical. Those are the adaptations that enable aerobic athletes us endurance athletes to ride longer, swim longer, run longer. Simple as that. Now there's this training concept known as specificity. And that principle says that if you want to excel at riding 200 meter sprints or running 200 meter sprints, ride lots of or run lots of 200 meter sprints. If you want to do well at a 40K time trial on the bike, ride lots of those. The point I'm making is that physically, that principle falls apart around six hours-ish of work when we're talking cycling, around two and a half-ish, again, 
general terms. I know there's individuals who are more or less two and a half hours of running and about an hour into swimming. So if you want to be a fast 24-hour racer on the bike, <laughs> you don't just go do a 24-hour race every week <laughs> or even one per month because the recovery time of those sessions, of those events, necessitate, necessitate making them not worth doing regularly. So it's not worth it because you're going to sacrifice sleep. You're going to subject your body to a lot of thermal variation, dehydration, and also the caloric death that is normal in these types of training sessions. No matter how well you fuel, the toll on your body is so high as to not make it worth the gain you get from it. Now, once every six months is fine because you know you're mentally going through the process, but the training adaptation is very limited. The longer and less supported the event is, the greater the risk of more recovery time. And even in this case, that we're talking about post-event mental breakdown, you're just going to be fried. You can't put forth that effort every month or every week. And the one I really want to add that I haven't heard you mention is, and this is the one I hear a lot in the strength world, is hormone profile. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Your blood is so thoroughly trashed that getting any kind of positive benefit out of it is not just uh, impossible, but counterproductive, like more will make you worse. Exactly. So now let's bring this back to the swimming aspect. And that was very true. Um, David, because also with that, that will also break down the body that mentally you won't even want to look at your running shoes. Like the, the two go in such tandem when we're depleted hormonally, the mind knows and it will fight you. And that's not mind over body anymore. <laughs> that's called screwing yourself into an overtraining state. Agreed? Yep. Familiar. <laughs> so Although not as bad as you think, but okay, familiar. Go yeah. on. Um, so. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. That's good. We never want it to be as bad as I think. Back to that stoic quote. Um, so 4,000 yards and just swimming straight, you're not getting that adaptation, right? We want adaptations and those are done by doing it cleaner, better, stronger, faster, sound technically sound form sound posture sound movements so that's sort of where we are with the swimming point of clarification mm -hmm. it's time though right it's getting over that hour threshold um I, I always live in terms of hours not in the distances uh so it would be different right you doing four thousand is very different than a intermediate swimmer doing four thousand correct agreed but um, I don't swim an hour straight barely ever. Well, Even, not straight, but intervals for an hour versus intervals oh, for an hour and a half is what I mean to say. Oh, yes, yes. Doing the sure. exact same workout, right? Just someone Because yes. we have athletes who can't get through a 3,000-meter swim in an hour and a half. And mm -hmm. so what do you do? Yeah, I'm talking more the nuance of not swimming straight sets of jumping mm -hmm. in, swimming 3,000 yards straight or 2,000 yards straight and thinking that's an effective workout for triathlon. It's like a 5,000 or 10,000 meter runner um, just running 5,000 meters and 10,000 meters and not training anything else. Nobody does that. They train 
400s and 800s and sets of 1200s and sets of 2000s and sets of 1000s and like tempo days and speed days and VO2 max days and drill days. Like, and you, that, so in triathlon though, there are many beginners and beyond beginners who just get in and swim straight. And I'm saying avoid that. But I got off on a tangent with the 3000 rule and so forth. So for Van, while we want to, uh, we could keep those. Now, the next question is, is it better scrapping one of those swims for a proper strength session? 51, absolutely. <laughs> I would scrap both of them <laughs> and do more strength, especially if you're planning to do half and full Ironmans. You need a strong structure to maintain the training load, but also for all of us as we train, what keeps us in integrity of our form, our footwork, our posture, of our technique is strength. We need to be strong enough to maintain the form when we are tired. This is, I want to expand on this because uh, when I was listening to the consult podcast uh, the, right before this one, he was wondering um, like a lot of people are, uh, how much gym work should I be doing? How strong should I be or how muscular should I be? Which are two different questions. I don't really relate that much versus how much should I be focusing on endurance? And it occurred to me that the entire paradigm that most people have about what is strength is completely wrong. Yes. Like it's not even helpful. And this has been a very painful transition for me having to have a, a death of an identity, so to speak, as a, a former gym rat as a necessity to survive in both ski racing, which is, you know, power sport. So just, you know, 32 inch thighs are kind of just like necessary. And, or if you're a woman like 28, uh, and then, but jeans don't fit ever. And, um, you just look preposterous in your pants and that was just life. And then, um, in rugby, just add upper body, but same thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, in running, in swimming, in biking, being able to, so one, um, putting on muscle mass, you only ever want to do that if your muscles are so small that they physically cannot get you through um, the work that you intend to do, which let's just say half Ironman, for example, if your muscle fibers are, um, how do you say, unable to keep your technique controlled and efficient or economical, actually, uh, then, okay, yeah, you might need to add a little bit of muscle. Cool. Um, in very specific places uh, that are pretty well known. But if you accomplish that, which um, it, it, beyond that, what are we doing, right? When we go into the gym, what are we trying to accomplish when we uh, do hex bar deadlift for, you know, three sets or um, pull-ups. So like, what are we really trying to accomplish? And it occurred to me that um, to define pure strength as what's the maximum amount of weight that I can move in a certain number of reps. So you might define strength is um, how much weight can I lift one time, hex bar deadlift, how much weight can I put on and pull it? Um, or uh, in pull-ups, how many pull-ups can I do? Um, these are distractions. These are not relevant to the sports that we do. And this sucks because I love nothing more than just racking up a heavy barbell and pulling it or squatting it. But, you know, realized very recently, like, this is, this has got to stop. 
And instead, what are you actually doing? Uh, and I think the correct way to think about this is neurological. This is an extremely profound point that you are, <clears throat> as you just said, but I think someone could very easily miss it if they have the wrong paradigm. You want the muscles, each one, to fire very smoothly and efficiently. Uh, and what ends up happening if you just run or you just bike is certain muscles become uh, they take over and do too much. And then other muscles, uh, namely in the hips, become very weak. And then A, you become very injury prone. And um, B, once you do get to a fatigue, fatigue state, your technique falls apart. You become very non-economical, right? Mm -hmm. You become someone who um, is more economical will blow by you, um, burning the same amount of calories, one might say. So the the entire way to think about pull-ups is I am not trying to become the strongest pull-up person I can. That's irrelevant. Um, I am trying to do a pull-up so that my lats are firing more motor units and um, I am using the correct muscles. I am not bicep dominant, but I am actually reintegrating my upper back. I am reintegrating my core, which is a massive part of pull-ups or with, with deadlift, um, I am creating a strong neurological connection so that my glutes and my hamstrings fire together instead of just being hamstring dominant like a cyclist might be if they don't do strength. And that is, and in running especially, my God, um, having the little tiny, relatively speaking, hip stabilizers that keep your hips level flat that uh, in the core that produce counter rotation these things once they shut off very visibly if you go to the end of a marathon i mean it is a a dumpster fire of muscles that are no longer present and you just see compensation city and no one's fast when that happens so is this resonating am i yeah. saying this correctly you're all okay. you're going into a lot of detail <laughs> but what you're saying there's but there's also qualifiers around it and that becomes um, one, am I just looking to finish or am I looking to put forth the best performance I currently am capable of just finishing? I would argue not really weight room necessary because who cares what the form is or how you feel? You're just looking to finish and then time spent biking, running, doing said activity is probably better spent then. Next level up is finishing to the best of my current abilities. Well, you, again, current abilities without or with strength, eh, who knows? Um, because you can almost do strength work on the bike. You can get more specific with big gear work. You can do strength work running with regards to hills and bounding and um, things like that. Then next level up. All right. I want to thrive in this? And how do I put forth the best possible result given to where I can get to? Not just who I currently am, but given to where I can get to. And yes, then strength becomes a big part of this because like you said, neuromuscularly firing, engaging all the muscle groups, as you said, but the key qualifier in support of the activity you're doing. They work in tandem with you. They allow you to use those other muscles for as long as you can. It's more efficient, like you said, to do the running motion with good form and good neuromuscular engagement 
um, as long as you can, because yes, it uses less energy. You're firing in the chain more efficiently and you're quite honestly moving faster too. Um, so we can continue to go up that chain. Now, the other thing is though, and what you're touching upon worded differently is, are we looking for an anabolic or a catabolic response, right? And most think of strength training as this anabolic response. And that's the, Growth response for those yes, who aren't familiar. Exactly. Making things bigger. Exactly. So big round muscles and um, you know, it's a difference than the lean muscles. And all that is is prescription. How many repeats you're doing and what kind of weight and right, how the routine is running, things like that. So that can all be modified with different inputs. But again, you want to think intentionally, what am I getting out of this strength workout? And how is it helping me integrate into the athlete I want to be? So that's so what you're saying. Absolutely dead on. Um, no pun intended. Can I give like one yeah. quick example that just yeah. perfectly illustrates the point? The example would be, um, we know this from the logs of pro marathoners, that if they were going into the gym with their run-specific strength coaches to become strong, they would they would put on a lot more weight on the bar than they do. They would look they, like Ryan Hall instead of what Ryan Hall used to look like. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good example. For those who aren't familiar, Ryan Hall put on 50 pounds of muscle after retiring from... <sighs> Uh, marathoning and um, pretty pretty big guy uh, now and but that's but that's great that just shows you too that you can have both you can be the lean not string bean he never was really well he was pretty skinny and um, he got down to one thirty five at five yeah. ten like yeah. but you can <laughs> have that bad. and guess what when you're ready you can return to that it doesn't have to be either or it's not a dualistic relationship you know. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the weights that you see lifted instead are not that many reps and not that much weight, almost to the point where they're like, I could do more. Like, this isn't that hard. And they're like, no, don't do more. They do the, this less amount and then they leave. Why? Because the purpose was never to become strong, air quotes. Uh, the purpose was never to put on muscle. The purpose was, okay, we're going to use this heavy thing to move slowly, to remind the muscles to fire, and then we're going to go home. And it's such a different perspective. I mean, strength is the wrong word. It shouldn't be called strength. It should be called activation, uh, integration and activation. That's why I call it, you know, chassis integrity. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, the yeah. platform that you are using in order to propel yourself forward, swim, bike, run, whatever, the chassis, integrity. It needs to be integrated into how you're using it for said activity. So let's dive back into better use of time, we were saying. Oops. So the next question revolves on this email around recovery time of the bike intervals. Again, what is the bike interval session designed to do for us this week? this week being this week's worth of intervals, as well as what time of year are we in? And, you know, where are we with regards to this training stimulus? And what adaptation are we looking for? The weekly bike intervals that I send out and put on the website, um, 
under aimcoaching.com and you can find them there if you navigate around a little bit for cycling intervals are designed to be your high quality focused interval bike trainer session for the week. And so, yes, I want limited time in order to build stamina. We do the endurance on the weekends or on longer days outside or via consistently showing up and doing many short rides in a row, shorter meaning 90 minutes to two hours. But the intervals are for stamina. And if I can recover effectively in less time, that means I can come closer to doing said effort, watts, resistance, whatever, without recovery for longer periods of time. So yes, we do want to reduce and fluctuate. This isn't VO2 max. It's more threshold buffering, um, capacity type of work. We're right on that edge of that ceiling of lactate threshold, working above it, below it. Um, we're still clearing. There's enough time um, for recovery and the interval isn't long enough that we can't clear in a minute or 90 seconds or even 30 seconds or the session, meaning the set isn't long enough that 30 seconds, um, let's say six times 90 seconds with 30 seconds rest at um, upper zone four, that we can't complete that and not recover from it later in the day. But within it, we should be able to recover from a 90-second effort with a 30-second rest, right? That's 30%. That's a pretty good number. Once you get below 25% recovery, meaning of the time, then yes, then things get um, dangerous. Not dangerous, that's the wrong term. But they might not have a, a, be as effective because you're just flogging yourself. Yeah, you wouldn't do that very often. And probably not in a quality session like what you're yeah. talking about. That'd be more yeah. like a, a race simulation of sorts. Yeah. Is doing two interval sets a week on the trainer too much or just doing one? Well, again, it depends on where you are in your season and what you're preparing for and what your infrastructure is. Like if you're in the Northeast right now with three hours of uh, three feet of snow, <laughs> <laughs> and it's January and you're getting ready for an event in September, yeah, you know, that's going to be a different answer than I have uh, 70.3 Puerto Rico in four weeks and I need to be ready for a threshold effort for 56 miles and be able to run off that. So it's hard to say. Um, typically on bike, I have two 90-minute Z2 rides one interval day, one big gear day, one long ride. Yeah, I mean, it sounds good on paper, but how we're executing Z2 rides, are they high cadence? Do they tax us at all? Um, interval day, how hard is that interval day? Are those VO2 max intervals? Are they just threshold intervals? Are they tempo intervals? Are they my intervals, which would mean they're threshold intervals? Okay. What's the big gear? How big of a gear? What type of cadence? Are we talking big gear for three hours? Are we talking big gear for three times eight minutes? I don't know. Are we talking 10 times two minutes at 45 to 55 cadence just below threshold? Well, yeah, that's, that goes away quickly. Um, are we talking three one-hour big gear sessions at 60s cadence? 
that's going to be a little bit more painful. <laughs> so hard to say, depends on what you're getting ready for. As they like to say, horses for courses. Have you ever messed around with rollers? Yeah, love rollers. I don't know why. I've recommended them to a client the other day. I don't know why more people don't have them. They solve the problem of bike handling, relatively speaking. You're not on a static trainer where you could literally lean to the side. And while that might not be great for your carbon fiber frame, it sure as heck doesn't <laughs> teach your core how to ride a bike. Yeah. I mean, again, um, depends on what you're getting ready for and what type of training you're doing. Um, there's a lot of training tools that can make everything better, <laughs> but then you're buying tools all the time and you then start living with the frustration of what should I do with all these tools and how do I integrate it into seven days of training per week? <laughs> because <laughs> if you put every training concept together, you don't have enough time. Yeah, well, that's true too. I guess you just do what a lot of us do, which is hire a coach and just have them deal with it. So. Yeah, but then you might have a lot of training tools that they don't use. <laughs> the coach doesn't apply because it's like, again, oh, almost certainly. <laughs> let's maximize the limited training time you have. The other thing about um, swimming, and this might not be applicable in February of um, the season, but I find that in some of my race reports, and I just put this into this podcast because it, it came up in some other question with regards to open water swimming, especially for triathletes, spend less time sighting. I can't tell you how much people focus on sighting during the triathlon swim. Um, now, if you're leading the race, focus on sighting. But the rest of the time, you have 1,500 other minnows swimming with you. Follow them. And it's not going to make that big of a difference if you go 30 seconds out of your way. But the energy and how it breaks your already inefficient swimming stroke to look up and sight and then re-enter re and properly find the rhythm of smooth, effective swimming, not a good use of your time and energy early in a race that you're going to need a lot of energy for the rest of the day on. I would say... Follow the bubbles and the feet in front of you. If you're passing everybody, seed yourself better next time. But this constant focus on sighting, like I read emails that said every third or fourth breath or even sixth or seventh breath. I wouldn't do that if I were all by myself um, leading a race. It's, it's just not that necessary. Now you say, okay, but what happens if I typically swim crooked if I don't uh, sight more? and I have nobody in front of me. Well, that's a different issue, but that means let's solve the problem, not solve the moment. Um, we'll need to fix that in training as well as in open water swimming and adjusting your stroke. But this constant sighting is an incredibly inefficient use of our stroke as well as waste of energy. So I would always focus on the bubbles, on the other swimmers around me, on the swimmers ahead of me. A short look up just validates we're all on the right path. Then I don't even need to look again for another three, four, five minutes because I'm just following those swimmers that seem to be also heading towards the same buoy. So the lesson there is sight less. Chris, do you have recommendations for the 
best ways to monitor total workload for an athlete. To me, even with Olympians and operators, it becomes a dance of observations, insights they share with me, quantified self-data, HRV is huge for this, and gut. I know this doesn't sound very scientific. Training Peaks has a formula for this, TSS and other load management insights, but I don't fully trust it since it's dependent of the athlete entering sharing the data, which is often why we end up in this predicament. So I actually chart based off of a few factors, HRV, resting heart rate, emotional well-being, i.e. crankiness, sleep fatigue, irritability, which the athlete tells me about on calls and when I see them. Then I also look at the training load. How long are they in this training phase? I have found some athletes thrive on 10 days on, one to two days easy, or others crush it for seven days and need two days off, or others two plus weeks on and then a full week off. So over time with the athlete, I observe, chart, capture this, and try to find their optimal training stimulus. Remember, training equals stress plus recovery. Lastly, lactate threshold testing for my athlete becomes critical as well. Given that I have the quarterly data, I can see how tired they are, submaximal heart rate and lactate numbers, and then again can lay over the other data and insights. Especially seeing, let's say on a treadmill or on a bike test, even in the pool or bench press, that upper reaches of lactate values can't be reached, or let's say in the strength room, um, upper values of ability with regards to past strength output, I know they are close to being either sick or overtrained and desperately need to reload or a recovery week. So to recap on the question, do you have recommendations for the best ways to monitor total workloads for an athlete? Training load based on what I see and prescribed. HRV, sleep and resting heart rate. Insights on emotional well-being from the athlete, non-direct. So what comes up with conversations and specific questions, not asking them, hey, how you doing? <laughs> How's your emotional well-being? Although I ask that narrative with regards to um, rest day reflections. And we, you and I have talked about this already on the podcast with rest day reflections. And then finally, lactate threshold testing. That's data to validate the objective insights, seeing signs of deep fatigue by topping out at submaximal lactate numbers when compared to previous tests and its data. So athletic load monitoring is a, the combination of subjective and objective insights and sort of whirling those two together in a big ball and taking experience and knowledge and insight and going from there. And taking that, going from there, applying, and then seeing how to, again, adjust the load with recovery appropriately based off the new insights and continuing to hone down and individualize this question. With endurance athletes, we have a huge advantage over other sports where we get to keep things ideally extremely consistent where mm -hmm. over 80% of the week looks very similar to the body. And because of that, Wait, we've reduced what 80% of the week looks very similar to the body. 
Oh, sorry. I was I was thinking of two different things at the same time and bl- blurred my words together. Oops. So <clears throat> starting over. I'm glad, um, I'm, glad I'm paying attention. Yeah, seriously. With endurance athletes, we, we got to keep that part in there. Uh, and I, I don't ca- know about that, Chris. Catch, catch you on saying, wait, 80%? What? What are you talking about? Floating off in outer space. No. Why male models? No. So, That's you. Yeah. A little while ago, we did that recording, which I, I transcribed. I haven't done anything with it because I don't know what to do with it. But it was very impactful for me, which was you talking about the thought experiment. What if an athlete, a triathlete, mm-hmm. just did the exact same training week every oh, yeah. single week for a year and never really fluctuated? And mm-hmm. um, you know, obviously, there there's a lot of holes you could poke in that, but let's just put that aside for a second. And let's say you actually did that. Um, and then- you know, you, you start getting fitter and more um, accommodated, which is a you know a law of accommodation. If you mm-hmm. put in the exact same stimulus, you stop responding to it, and then it, you stop improving. So, um, you made some comments that um, that actually solves itself because the reality of being a busy uh, professional with a dynamic life, um, there will be a lot of variables that get introduced all the time that. Um, make a lot of variation where there otherwise wouldn't be any if you were a monk and you lived in a mountain. And even then there'd be variation because changing seasons, changing daylight, changing, um, you know, this is a wet ride. This is a dry ride. This is anyways, the point is that in endurance, we have this wonderful advantage over other sports, especially team sports, where if we can truly keep everything very consistent, then we can um, only have a few levers that we're ever moving. I mean, we're moving the loads and the quantities of work in the gym. We're changing the duration and occasionally adding more very measurable work sets to our quality, whether it be in the pool, on the bike, in the run, uh, at the track. And so, um, so it's just stupid easy for us as coaches and also as athletes, um, if, if you in fact are putting together consistent weeks, if you're not, that's a whole other matter. So um, you, you don't even need to look at TSS really. You just need to, again, uh, juxtapose that against the feedback that the athlete is writing down. And you know this also enables all sorts of cool things. Like you can spot the athlete getting sick uh, very quickly and before their symptoms even get that bad. Um, when they suddenly fail a workout, um, if they've been consistent, then you're like, wait a minute, something else is going on. Um, anyways, I I love that about our sport that you don't need to get that high tech. Yeah. And in, in, in our example, uh, I don't know if that's uh, necessarily super accurate, but because let's say in swimming or in running, I think it's, uh, or in cycling, those are my best three examples because those are all the sports I did. You can keep them all the same. You can keep them all the same for one year. And I would challenge you, if you could do that in a disciplined way, I actually believe that you would improve. And fundamentally, repetition is going to help fundamentally efficiency is going to help uh fundamentally economy of motion is going to help fundamentally mentally you're going to grow and get fitter by doing the same thing because your insights and observations of what those same workouts are will put you in better tune with the body 
that you're working with, which then allows you to see the signals, hear the signals, adapt the signals better in four weeks from now than today, in four months from now than in four weeks. You know, you're, you're growing, whether you know it or not. Ligaments, physiologically, right? Muscle fibers, oxygen uptake, all those things, what we talked about also before in training with regards to physiological stress, those are all happening when you keep the workouts the same for a year. So I would actually say, yes, you're going to continue to improve. Now, you have to be disciplined to not change the workouts because you are smarter, better, stronger, and more insightful from it because you will want to increase cadence on some of them, or you will want to do big gear work on some of them because you feel inherently that that's where the weak points are. But the value of, let's say, a year of that and learning all the tiny nuances of how your pedal stroke is and how your foot's um, applying pressure throughout and is your heel in the shoe properly? Can you wiggle your toes and what happens then and how your upstroke is versus your downstroke and when your hips are engaged and the glutes are engaged and the hamstrings are engaged and how relaxed your shoulders are in your cycling position and where you're gripping and how tight you're gripping and how you're breathing. And I mean, there's endless things and that's just cycling. Just think of this running or swimming. Like you're constantly, and same workout. Let's say same one hour, six days a week, 52 weeks. I mean, I'd almost want to try that. <laughs> but with like with like a, a clean sheet, right, as a, of an athlete. But yeah, so there is a lot happening. We are never the same person than we were five minutes ago. And so- that's the, the, the hard path to take, quite honestly. And it touches on what zone two actually is. The patience and discipline and awareness you learn by keeping things that easy, by being willing to let go and just sort of tune out in order to let the heart rate stay low, not have expectations, not want to grind, not think go hard or go home is the answer. And shifting your mindset and your being to this sort of patient, go all day approach, it will take what it takes, how long it takes, whatever it takes, um, touches on that somewhat. I finally wanted to shout out PATH running gear and how it's something that I am completely bought into. Those guys with their gear and I absolutely love it. I used to never run with uh, my phone and not saying that I'm a big proponent of that, but when I do want to take my phone, because let's say my audio, um, my audible is on there and I want to listen to a book or want to listen to a podcast that I don't want to put on my little shuffle, then running with a phone has never really been an option because most shorts, eh, not really that comfortable having that thing bouncing around, not really a fan of the belts or the arm um, gizmo that you wrap around you. So these past shorts though, it's incredible. You put that phone in the back pocket and nothing moves. It's perfectly attached tightly 
to the low side of your back or upper side of your butt and not an issue whatsoever. And I've probably done one, uh, six 29029s, so 30 plus hour events in them because they're my go-to for that because when I travel, I just mm. take a shell with extra um, underlayers with me um, just to keep travel light and I don't have to take 10 things. And those things, it's incredible how comfortable they are, even in hot, dry environments up in the mountains or in cold environments and so forth. And the pockets, I can fit a ton of stuff into as I'm carrying stuff or fuel and nutrition for other hikers and stuff like that. So, you know, they're definitely onto something. And you know they're on to something when I look over and Colin O'Brady is also wearing PATH and we both sort of go, hey, love these shorts. And he says the same thing. So um, talk about tested gear by a true adventurer and a guy who knows what he wants to wear when he wants to wear it. So yeah, I definitely wanted to give a shout out to those guys. They sent me some stuff. What was that? A year ago? A little bit less than a year ago when we were at um, Backbone? It was 10 months ago. Yeah. So crazy. Yeah, I know. But it was, it's definitely, it's lasted the time. I've worn them a lot. The gear is durable, comfortable, solves a lot of problems. Um, and again, I can definitely validate the claims that they make with regards to how things feel secure and can just be used under any conditions. And for those who want to check out the website, that is pathprojects, P-A-T-H, projects.com. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not affiliated with them in any way, nor am I getting money to say this. I just, as a thank you, even um, to acknowledge that the stuff that they sent me is really, really good quality and um, reliable. So I was very impressed by them. Yeah, it only took me a year to finally, <laughs> or 10 months to finally um, be able to properly say I tested it through and through. But you know, even now I'm up to like 30 mile runs and they're my go-to. Um, I no longer use my old um, shorts, which was just with a liner, uh, not a liner. What, what were those called? Um, just yeah, liner, that is right? What they're called yeah, um, and uh, now those undershorts and those the shell of the shorts over it is my go-to for long runs. Um, so yeah, that's all I do. Um, yeah. This so like funny story to <laughs> close this. Um, do you remember on the Oregon coast ride a year and a half ago? Um, you made some comment offhandedly and you probably didn't think anything of it. Like, Oh, David, like those people who run with their phones, which was to say like, yep. they're not real runners. The very next day you see me walk out of the hotel room with a, a phone strapped to my arm. <laughs> and I remember you saw it and you went like, Oh <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Although I've gone kind of the opposite direction. I've started leaving my phone at home for the first time. Oh yeah. So do I. It's just every now and then, you know, when you're going out for four, five, six hours, you want your phone with you, not even just even for you know staying in touch for to. security purposes, yeah. safety purposes. But um, no, anything shorter, I'm always taking my shuffle, the good old school shuffle, um, unbeatable, light, easy. But the interesting thing is also on on the uh, the the path gear is you at least. It's, it's a non-brainer. You don't have to, I don't even need to put it in my vest. 
because I put other things in my vest. I used to have to keep one water bottle out um, because that's where I would put mm-hmm. my phone in my vest to keep it from yeah. bouncing around. And I would run, run with just one um, bottle in the chest pocket or soft bottle. And now I go back to two because I have that one properly in my shorts and it does bounce around and become a distraction. That's it for today's episode. If you would like to share any feedback or if you have any questions, please feel free to email us, chris at ampcoaching.com or david at ampcoaching.com. And Chris writes really good articles about the athlete's mindset. So if you would like to receive the next one in your email, then please go to ampcoaching.com and sign up for our newsletter. You can also check us out on Instagram at ampcoach. We don't post a lot, but when we do, we try to make it insightful. And in closing, there's a book called Once a Runner by John L. Parker Jr. Some of you have probably heard about it or even read it. Runner's World, uh, to the extent that they have any credibility whatsoever, says it's the best book ever written about running. I so far agree. And it's deeply entertaining and deeply heartwarming as well. But it follows a character named Quentin, who, Quentin Cassidy, who is a miler. And it basically shows what it takes to become one of the best milers in the world. And at this one early scene in the book, he's hanging out with a guy named Denton, who is an Olympic gold medalist runner. And Denton is regaling Cassidy with stories about how he has to tolerate dinner parties and everyone asking, oh, what's your secret? And cleverly asking, what are you running away from? There's this great scene where Denton invites anyone who wants to to train with him. And sure enough, because he's an Olympic gold medalist, a bunch of young men show up and they're doing the first workout with him and the second workout with him and the third workout with him. And they realize, oh, this is easy. This is nothing at all. We're just running at an easy pace. And then they show up for the fourth workout and the fifth workout and they start feeling tired and they think, oh, okay, this is kind of challenging. And then they show up for the sixth workout and the seventh workout. And then it dawns on them in horror that there is no secret, that this is it. You show up every single day when you're supposed to and you run. And then one by one, these people who are so emphatic to learn the secrets of the gold medalist have some excuse, their hamstring hurts, they get a cold. And then one by one, they stop showing up for one workout, and then two, and then Denton is running alone all over again by himself, never missing a workout. Now reading from the book, what was the secret they wanted to know? In a thousand different ways, they wanted to know the secret. And not one of them was prepared, truly prepared, to believe that it had not so much to do with chemicals and zippy mental tricks as with that most unprofound and sometimes heartrending process of removing molecule by molecule, the very tough rubber that comprised the bottom of his training shoes. Also from the book, you don't become a runner by winning a morning workout. The only true way is to marshal the ferocity of your ambition. I'll say that again. Marshal the ferocity of your ambition over the course of many days, weeks, months, and if you could finally come to accept it, years.